Moving from bootstrap hustle to fintech muscle, the story of Moniz shows how hard work and innovative thinking not only disrupt, but can also reconstruct financial services in a digital first era. To talk about what went into forming this incredible company and the future that lies ahead, we have founder CEO Norris Koppel and Chief Commercial Officer Atul Chowdhury here on Dave and Dharma. Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Dom Demystify show. Dave. Dom. Dave and Dom Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dom Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to the Dave and Dom Demystify Show. And this week, we're going to demystify Moniz. This hidden secret is a real success in neobanking. I'm not too sure that everyone really knows about them as much as they should. And certainly what we'd like to get into is the story behind monies, because I think it's really quite interesting. And to do that, we've got two very special guests. We've got the founder, Norris Koppel, and we've got Atul Chowdhury, also from Moniz. Welcome, guys. If you can, can you give us a little bit of background on yourselves? And let's get into Moniz after that. Hi, everyone. Really, really nice to be here. And thank you very much for the invitation. I'm Norris Coppola. I'm the founder and CEO at Moniz. And my background basically is that we have been more or less, as you would describe me as a serial entrepreneur, have created many small businesses that have gone nowhere and created businesses that have gone somewhere. And Moniz is one of the, let's say, success stories. So my previous background was in consumer lending in the UK. And about nine years ago, I started working with Moniz and been basically running it since. And Moniz, obviously, we're going to be talking more about what we do today, but it's been an incredible journey of nine years. And we have seen the birth of neobanking wave here in the UK and the world. So let's talk about more as we go. Some other bits and pieces about me is I'm very much focusing on financial education. I, having been in credit card debt when I was entering university, really painfully hurt by credit card companies and so on. I really passionate about financial education and making sure that young people don't make foolish mistakes that I did. And therefore, I've invested in Good Deeds Foundation, which is established in a country of Estonia. And many other entrepreneurs like founders of Skype and TransferWise and many others have also been part of it. And also, my angel investments are going more and more in that direction. So that keeps me happy outside work as well. Hi, everyone. I'm Atul Chowdhury. I'm Chief Commercial Officer at Moniz. Everyone in Moniz has two roles. So my second role is I've taken new platform business. Background on me. So I started off in management consulting, actually. And through the course of working with sewage and rail and everything, I ended up in financial services. Spent some time in Australia. I spent 10 years. I worked with Commonwealth Bank over there, BNP Paribas. 
and then moved back to the UK, did some stuff with, I think everybody in banking at some point worked on the Lloyd H. Boss transformation. So I was, I was one of them. And then most recently, I was one of the founding team of a French neobank called Ditto, which was part of TravelX, which was actually the first neobank that IPO'd. And after doing that, I met Norris during the course of that role, fell in love with the vision of Moniz and have been here for the last three and a half years. Great, great, great. Thank you so much, guys. How did you start Moniz? Why did you start it? And what is the vision? So it actually was really, really simple. Years ago, as a new entrant to the UK, moved here and everything was going well in my life, but I couldn't open a simple bank account to get salaries. And that really got this business going. Back in the day, there was no neobanks. There was nobody really. And I thought I was working in isolation. And years later, was proven to be untrue. So what was stopping you from having an account? It's really bizarre. I mean, if you are British and you have not gone abroad to open a new bank account, it may be somewhat difficult to understand what is the actual problem here. But if you're coming from abroad and you don't have any credit score in the UK, banks actually do credit checks on you for a completely unknown reason. This has nothing to do with KYC or know your customer checks or any of the AML checks. But banks do credit checks on you. And if you don't have credit score, banks decide that you must be not the great customer because they want to send you loans and credit cards and stuff. So they simply refuse to give you a bank account. Simple as that. And weirdly enough, even so many years after the launch of Moniz, this still keeps happening in the UK with the mainstream banks. But of course, people like us, neobanks like us and many others now are making it much, much more easier. But it's difficult to understand looking back today why this problem is there, but it definitely is still around. So I'm kind of interested, you had the problem. I mean, how did you go about kind of starting to solve it? Because I guess... There's a number of things that you'd have had to do in terms of getting monies up and running. Taking on the mainstream banks in the UK must have been quite a daunting challenge at that time. Because as you said, there wasn't really a neobank industry at that stage. So you kind of a bit before things. So how did you start and go about things? We've all had problems with banks, but we don't go off and start one, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's either crazy crazy or stupid, or maybe (laughs) both. (laughs) Also, I think I was relatively naive. I've never been in banking before. I was in lending business, but not in banking. And I thought it can be done. So if you go back to sort of first principles, then actually, if things are possible on first principles level, then they actually are possible. So I think this is the level where I looked at it. But I don't think we ever wanted to really take on the world's banks. I think that wasn't the idea. The idea really was to create something totally different that enables people to succeed, to give them what they want without actually being a bank. So Moniz today still isn't a bank. We are regulated business, but we are regulated differently. And we don't have a heavy balance sheet. We are more transactional. So we enable accounts and cards and payments and everything that typically people associate with being a bank. But no lending, no savings, nothing like that. So that's what we don't do. You have an e-money license, right? Or We have e-money license, but it typically right. doesn't mean anything to a normal human being. Yes, yeah, yeah. You say we provide the payments accounts and e-money accounts and people, their eyes freeze. They don't understand it, so it doesn't make sense. And that's also why it's quite difficult to explain in media what is that we do. Because we can say we are a money account or money app, but we can't say that we are a 
bank or we provide bank accounts, even current accounts, we use that terminology. But how do we get going? It's basically, number one, we needed to invent a couple of things. The KYC or, let's say, identity verification component that needed to be real-time and needed to live on mobile phones. We kind of did this. We were the early pioneers in the UK and Europe when we started. And the second component, again, is that we wanted to build something that scales globally. And technology to do that didn't exist. So we created that as well. It took us actually a couple of years of building in order to even be able to launch. So that's a key difference between building a technology play or fintech play, technology slash fin. So I think we started as a tech company, but we needed to put a lot more effort in in order to actually become the fin as well. So when you say you built your own technology, is that in the actual core banking platform itself? In a nutshell, the answer is yes. So everything that pulls things together and makes stuff happen is something that we need to own. And of course, we're working with other companies who provide access to payment rails and national banking access and so on. But again, if you want to build a truly international or global solution, you can't actually do everything yourself. You still need to rely on partners, but you've got to control the core technology and experience in the platform. I'm really interested in how you saw this as an international proposition. I know you're not a bank, but traditionally people look at the kind of market in local terms rather than international terms. So it sort of feels like the challenge you gave yourself was even more complex than just setting up something locally. When you thought about the customers and the pain points, was it simply about kind of making sure that people could get up and running with bank accounts quickly, or were there other things that you were looking to do? But at an international level? I wanted to build something that is built for me as a person. So I moved countries. I wanted this service to be helping me in this new country, UK, but also help me in my original country. So I wanted to build something that helps me to be whoever I want to be, wherever I happen to be. We found that although we built for that concept, it's not what people actually wanted. That's quite interesting experience. So initially we built services for sort of a global nomads and so on. And we found that actually at that point of time, that wasn't a massive market. You know, Today we are looking at the nature of work changing, You know, engineers working in other countries and so on. But you know, go back sort of a five, seven years, that wasn't the case. And we started looking at our user base And we noticed something that we didn't expect. And what we didn't expect was that people who actually live domestically in the UK and have been here for many years, they started using the service. And we started asking, why? Why why is that? And we then realized that actually we are more local player in any of these key markets where we operate. We are not this sort of a thin fintech layer that helps people, you know, all over the place in multiple jurisdictions. We are actually very heavily localized experience and people who, I don't know, drive, let's say, Uber or Deliveroo here and bring us food and have multiple jobs, but they have always lived in the UK. This is actually where we have seen most of the success these days. And people who have multiple incomes and who have fluctuating incomes and they have maybe not so steady jobs, this is where we have found that this is our bread and butter these days. And they speak many languages and we support them with languages. And yes, sometimes they also have their families living abroad. And this is where we are helping them again with their money affairs, in, not just in the UK, but beyond. It's fascinating. So people who are in the gig economy with multiple jobs, as you describe it, they may find themselves sort of slipping outside of 
the kind of traditional credit rails of the big institutions. And so what you're saying is Moniz helped solve that problem for them. What is the Moniz proposition? Is it kind of helping people without the track record or variable credit or whatever solve their day-to-day banking needs? If you think about it, those people that moved country initially, so we were very good at you know, being the first bank account in a new country. But those people over time have changed their status and a lot of them now are settled. Right. Moniz is going for five, seven, eight years. And because they've built this relationship up with Moniz where they've been using our account service, there's not much that you can do in a bank that you can't do with us. And so these people have become loyal and suddenly their habits have changed. So we see more income coming in. We see them having, you know, multiple jobs now. So they have, like Norris said, a volatile kind of income pattern. Now, one month they'll earn 6,000, the next month they might not earn anything. So what we've done is we've evolved our proposition against that. So no longer is Moniz a good app if you do a lot of international remittance, but we've added insurances to help people with wage streaming and to help people when they can't work and to give them extra protections. And that's caused us to change our demographic and almost go viral with the people that they work with. So, right. you know, if you're a delivery rider and your bike gets stolen, you can't work, you know, you can't work because you haven't got a bike that you just bought. And by us providing that insurance, suddenly we can help you to get back to work. And then you start talking about monies with your friends and your colleagues, etc. And suddenly we've seen ourselves grow into that industry. So that now I would probably say is almost our primary market, even more than new to country. I kind of wondered because I knew you didn't have a full banking license, but actually now it kind of all adds up because with an e-money license, you can hold what it's up to 10,000 pounds. And not too many people are going to have that, you know, at the end of every month or at the beginning of every month, right? So actually, most people could run their prime account, you know, with somebody that has an e-money license. I mean, I think that's very, very interesting. There aren't that many real restrictions with an e-money. The big thing for us is we can't lend out customer funds. We have to safeguard 100%, which means that it didn't matter for the last few years in a low interest environment. Now it is starting to matter. And we are working with partners to enable that. Very few real differences from a customer point of view when you're using money. Yeah. But now we have established ourselves as a good, solid sort of a transactional account, a money service. But I think what gets me excited is where we are headed next. And when you ask a typical customer, what is the difference between monies or let's say some of the more established banks? Most customers probably would say that Moniz doesn't offer credit. And I think this is where it gets really excited as we are now entering this domain. And one thing we want to probably cover today also is a little bit of how we have established ourselves as a primary account player, the advantages this gives to us. And one of the advantages is that we are swimming in the data. So imagine somebody who has their income coming to your, let's say, one of the top four UK banks, and then they top up their neobanking account to buy coffee and whatnot. Their end game basically here is that the neobank doesn't see the full data, and also the top tier bank doesn't see the full data. They have a partial view. 
And also these players, sometimes there is open banking that has been enabled, which gives a little bit more insight. And sometimes these banks are doing credit reference agency searches to get more data, but they don't really have holistic view. And where we have a somewhat deeper data pool is that thanks to having a primary account relationship with our customers, they get salaries in and every penny that they have in their lives is moving through our accounts, which means that we can utilize this data and we can come up with better approaches to credit and we can help customers to, again, build up their credit profile in the right way so they can qualify for some sort of a credit product from Moniz or even a mainstream bank. This is hugely interesting to me. And especially if you are trying to do this internationally, then it is something that hasn't really been done by anybody yet. So there is open banking, yes, but it still offers very impartial view. And I feel like this is the next frontier where we want to spread our wings a little bit. Atul, you also mentioned you've got a second job. Right. This is a platform business and this is kind of an area that David and I have looked at quite a bit. And we're seeing now increasingly banks providing banking as a service. Is this where you're going? You know, is this your platform business? Tell us more about this second job that you've got. Yeah. So again, the same way that Manise came from a problem statement, I think banking as a service or our platform came from a problem statement. And the problem statement was Three years ago, we started, when we got our own EMI, we had to understand how our platform was working. And at the same time, COVID happened. So it was the first time in Moniz's history where we weren't running so fast that we didn't have time to reflect and look at what we currently built. And as with any neobank or bank, we realized that We were running so fast, building so many features, almost like a feature factory, and therefore had a lot of tech debt that we built up over time and had almost built a legacy bank from scratch where you had one set of requirements and a whole bunch of new features that needed to be added. Easily done. Easily done. Everyone's probably done it. And unlike a bank, being a fintech gave us a bit of an advantage because we did have the opportunity to look at how we solve that. So do we refactor and fix what we've built and make it into the right platform for now? Or do we take a slightly different approach and rebuild it from scratch? We took the latter approach. So we really thought about everything we've learned in the last 10 years, looking at where technology had moved on and looking at core banking from first principles. And that then for the last two and a half years, that's the platform that we've been working on. It's completely re-engineered. We've thought about a hopeful microservices architecture. And, you know, I'm not going to go into any more technology than that because my CTO will kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Really, the interesting thing about the platform we've built is it is a true end-to-end platform. So it really is everything that you need to run current accounts. Because we've been operating in almost 31 countries in 14 languages with millions of customers, we've learned a lot about customer behavior. We've learned a lot about the nuances about how people think about banking in different countries. And so small things like when you issue a card, for example, it's so important to understand different address types. So address types in Romania are very different. You know, you have the postcode before the city and things like that. 
we've built all of that learning, all of our risk scores and everything into this engine. And we got approached by a number of third parties as we were actually going through our Series D, uh, Series C. And when we were talking to some of these banks, financial institutions and non-financial institutions, it became really clear that they were interested with our technology and our platform. And that's when Norris and I sat down and thought, well, actually, if people are saying they're really interested in our platform, maybe there's an opportunity here to turn our single tenant platform into a multi-tenant platform. And that's where we signed up our first client, which was Investec. And we had, again, some real principles. We uh, recognized that as a fintech and as a bank and having worked in technology, I didn't want to have armies of consultants helping to implement our solution. We also recognize that you know, banks and financial institutions want to own some of the IP and some of the logic that they're building. So they don't just want to give it to a third party and let them monetize it on their behalf. So the architecture is built in a way where we do allow our customers to own what they build, they can take an instance of our platform, they can do whatever they like to it. And also, Investec has shown us that we can deliver very lean. Moniz has always been built bootstrapping, and we've always had to solve problems using technology. You know, we serve 2 million customers with 100 operations people. That is unheard of in traditional banking. And the reason we can do that is because we've built a lot of this logic into our technology. So our customer service agents have so much information on the customer at the time that they service them, that it takes them, you know, seconds to respond to queries rather than days and weeks and multiple screens and whatever. Investec, was that across multiple geographies as well, or was that centered around a particular geography? That was centered around the UK, okay. on multiple products. I mean, I'm really fascinated in this idea of having two jobs. So is everybody's other job on the platform side? So do you have a B2C and then a B2B? Or is it not as sort of clear cut as that? So I think I'm one of the lucky ones that just has two jobs. I think some <laughs> people have even, uh, even more jobs. But no, we tend to look at each of our staff and our colleagues and look at where their skills lie and give them stuff that actually they're interested in. So no, B2B is something very new. A lot of people that have worked with Moniz came to work for a consumer brand. Yeah. And you know, some of the clients that we're getting now, these are big brands, you know, quite aspirational brands that people either never wanted to work with or really wanted to work with at some point. So we give people that opportunity and the ability to choose where they kind of want to sit. Norris is a serial entrepreneur, so he knows that actually in startup land, you have to wear many hats and do start to grow. And then you can, at some point, start to delegate some of these hats. It's all about being lean and not waste money. Yeah. So right now, we have thought long and hard, how do we succeed with both businesses and how do we work in such a way that both businesses really complement each other and there is no waste. In fact, we are working on organizational setup as we speak, just to make it even better. But ultimately, everybody has, especially in senior management, has multiple jobs and we have shared resources across our businesses like finance and legal and so on. It makes absolutely no sense to have these resources duplicated. I've got a question for Dave, actually, which I rarely do when we're interviewing somebody else. I often hear that, you know, 
especially from doing startups, you know, you have to listen to the customer to design the product and the service, et cetera, right? We get all of that. And the big banks say that they do it, right? And we're hearing that all the monies was built up from understanding their customers. I mean, how much do they really do it in your experience? Because you work with some of the biggest, right? It's a good question. I think they spend a lot of money on research and then often decide that customers don't know what they're talking about. So I think what Norris was able to do was to build a proposition around a pain point. And I think the problem is for the traditional large players is they're not in a position to change direction because they've hard coded almost banking history into their platforms. I guess from what we're hearing is there's a real opportunity for them to actually start working with companies like Moniz to change that direction. I think, you know, we're at a very interesting point in time where banks will start listening more to customers, observing behavior, and then working with partners to deliver better, more interesting products. I guess that's what you're seeing, isn't it? Is companies reaching out to you, Norris, to think about partnerships. Investec's a traditional old legacy institution, isn't that? Yeah. And then when we got started along with many other neo-banking players also, is that there was lots of chat about revolution and taking on the banks. And then the banks initially didn't care, didn't take notice. Then they actually started noticing and then they were scared. And then they realized actually they shouldn't be scared. And I think after all these sort of phases where we are these few years later, is that actually we fundamentally have changed, neobanks have changed what customers are now expecting. So customer expectation has shifted and not actually neobanks, but I think more consumer behavior is now pushing big banks to towards change. And this is where we come in now and neobanking players like ours, we can now basically form these relationships with mainstream bank players and actually everybody benefits. And the ultimate winner is here, the customer and their experience and cost is going to get better and better. If anybody comes to me and says neobanks have actually not move the needle in the world. I would say that, yes, we actually have moved the needle. I've generally been quite hard on the neobanks saying, well, they haven't changed anything. And what you then realize when you talk to people is actually they've changed everything, that people are in control of money in a way that they couldn't be 10 years ago. So what has been solved is day-to-day -day banking, like moving money, paying bills, getting people closer to their finances. What hasn't been solved, and this was my last question to you, Norris, is that bit around financial education. So what you've seen is a very transactional revolution, but not an educational revolution. And I was kind of really interested in what you said, because I think that's the next big thing is how do you educate people to use money more wisely? As you build out credit portfolio, which it sounds like you're doing, are you sort of building in education as part of that? You brought out a very valid point. I think when I look at the players in the market right now, especially in Europe, it's very clear that people are not doing enough. And I think everybody has gone a little bit in a direction of, you know, needing to actually make unit economics work and the growth and all this. And they have been able to achieve this maybe by doing traditional things but maybe not genuinely caring about customers and how they actually save money and so on. So you see some players that are focusing only on education, but then they are not neobanks. And then you have neobanks who are doing everything else, but not actually providing proper advice. So I think opportunity is massive ahead of us right now. Moniz is not doing enough currently, but I think the direction for us is clear that we want to move in that direction. And 
ultimately for me, retail business in the future will be a business that not only onboards you and enables you to manage your money and so on, but also becomes like a secret agent in your pocket that kind of anticipates every step and makes certain decisions for you and makes you really succeed in life. So I think that's an ambitious sort of the next five-year target uh, internally. So credit and also making sure that we are taking some of the pain points away and also that people don't need to think about money that much. Remove that money worry. I think that's the goal for us going forward. Fantastic. Brilliant. Time is up for us, but I want to say thank you very much for your time and sharing a really fascinating story around Moniz. Congratulations, because I think you built a fantastic business at a time when it was difficult, really, to create a bank in effect. And I know the regulators have made things easier. Open banking has made things easier for NEOs, et cetera. But you did it when it was hard. And then you've done some hard work along the way. But the most important thing is you've clearly capitalized on creating a strong relationship with your customers. So, you know, I want to say thank you very much and congratulations. Thank you so much for inviting us over. And I think this is a long game and we are just getting started here. It just takes an enormous amount of time and effort, obviously. But we are here for the long run. And thank you very much for inviting us to the show. Yeah, thanks, Dermish. Thanks, David. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.